Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. Good morning. What a blessing to be with you. I'm so happy to be with you. I get excited just from your announcements. I get blessed. And I know that may sound crazy, but... Um, I mean, think about that doctrinally, theologically, the exact same space. This is a sacred space. We're worshiping the Lord. Anybody who comes here for the first time probably felt like I did when I come here for the first time. You look out this window and the very grass of the field and and these bamboo shoots are just, it's like they're waving, sometimes in time with the music. Does anybody else know that, notice that? Uh, But they're, they're shouting his praise. And the same sacred space where we worship the Lord, Thursday, you worship the Lord through feeding those in need, right? In this very space. And that is, uh, it gets me excited to think about what this church is doing so active, especially when I get to come here and preach around November and December and the many, many things. It's like uh, uh, you're giving all year, but during this season of the year, it's like you just, you know, hit that extra gear and just, uh, I'm proud of you. I'm, 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 I want to encourage you. It's good. And uh, what you're doing is good. And, and don't grow weary in doing good. I've been in a, a series on the attributes of God going through the book of Isaiah. And if you were here <clears throat> several weeks ago, we started by talking about the holiness of God. Isaiah chapter six, Isaiah sees this vision, the holiness of God. And then the week after that, we talked about the wrath of God. That was a fun one. You might want to go back on the podcast and check that out. If you know, if you're having a good day and think this is a little too good, click the end uh, uh, to the wrath of God. But we realize the wrath of God is just as important an attribute because the fury of His anger is just the fury of His love. He's against anything that would hurt His precious children. Last week we talked about the concept that God is King. When the nations rage, it's important to remember who is the King of Kings. And the Lord of Lords. And this morning, I want to unpack a little bit about what kind of king this king is. So we're still in this one attribute. We're given this one two weeks. And we're talking about what does it mean when we say God is king, what kind of king is he? And so we're going to look at a chapter in Isaiah. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 42. And so if you have a Bible, open it up to Isaiah 42. Or if you get there on your phone, however you get there, Isaiah 42. And we're entering into this section in Isaiah called the Songs of the Servant. The Servant Songs. And uh, it's, uh, these are exquisite songs about this, this coming servant king. Remember, Isaiah is speaking a hundred years into the future. And he's saying this isn't necessarily going to be for the audience that is his contemporaries. This, these are for those exiles. A hundred years from now, you're going to be blessed by this. You're going to need to hear this. And what you're going to need to hear is that though you are in exile and though you feel like you don't have any hope, there is coming a king and he is going to set everything right. And so who is this servant king? Who's this, you know, who's this king that's coming? Who is this servant that's coming? And over and over again in the New Testament, they refer back to these servant songs, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 53, and they identify when Jesus shows up, they say, ah, that's what, that's what all these Old Testament prophecies were about. I had the privilege of uh, speaking at City College uh, this week. It's kind of in the like Washington Heights and up, up there by Harlem. It's beautiful. And I got invited to speak to a Christian group whose job, in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, their job was to invite all these folks, invite their friends that don't know uh, much about God or Jesus. And they uh, had a, like a Thanksgiving meal. And if you want to reach college students, you just 
feed them. I mean, it's pretty simple. And it's a very simple formula. No need to improve on it. And so, uh, sure enough, got to speak. But when I do that, I sort of back up and uh, talk a little bit about, I, I just assume not everybody knows about Scripture. Not everybody knows about the Bible. And so I said, look, my job is to open up. Christians believe in this holy book. We call it the Bible. And my job is to open it up, tell you what it is. And I said, uh, really, when it comes to monotheistic religions, there's Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Uh, Judaism and Christianity have a lot in common. You may have heard the expression Judeo-Christian values or Judeo-Christian philosophy. What they mean is the Jew- Christian. Why? Because the, the, the Christian Old Testament is the Jewish Bible. Like we are, we, from Genesis to Malachi, we're like, yeah, we agree. That, that's the word of God. And then here's the only diversion point. Do you believe, like when Jesus of Nazareth showed up, there were Jews that followed him and they began to realize he's the one, he's the Messiah. And others said, no, he can't be the Messiah because he, he died on the cross. And so, you know, Messiah's kingdom not, is not supposed to end, but his kingdom did end. But then these people saw him back from the dead because he resurrected. And then they were like, it's got to be him. He's the Messiah. Everybody with me? And so that's, that, that explains why you have this, this New Testament. You can call it a Christian book, but it's really a Jewish follower of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, who then we realize Jesus invited both Jews and Gentiles in. And that's the New Testament. That's it. And so really the division is, do you think Jesus is this Old Testament one that's predicted? Or are we waiting for someone else? Is it going to be someone else? And if you think that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, then you're a follower of Jesus. You're, you can call it a Christian, but Christian, just the Greek word Christ, just means Messiah, right? You're just a, a follower of Jesus, or you don't. I explained all that, just like I explained it to you. For a lot of you, that was review. Maybe for some of you, that was very helpful. But he said, here's the deal. Once you see Jesus as the Messiah, it can't help but change how you read the Old Testament. You go back through the whole Old Testament and you realize every story whispers his name. Like you can't go back and you start to see it. And I had all these college students and they were like, yeah, you're right. And I was like, it was just like the movie, The Sixth Sense. Now, if you've ever seen it at the end, if you're like, if you haven't seen it and you want to, this is going to be a total spoiler alert. So just cover your ears. If you like want to see it, if you don't care, uh, just so you know, I haven't seen it. But apparently in the end, uh, you realize the kid sees dead people and the whole thing. So what you do is you go back and watch the movie and the whole time you're like, oh, of course, he never looks exactly at who's talking. Like there's all these things that all along you're like, of course, right? So I do what I just did to you. I laid out this example, right? But I forgot when the sixth sense came out, all these kids were fetuses. So they're looking at me and it was just crickets. <laughs> like, you know, Bruce will. And then like, it, you know how like you totally don't land with an audience. The worst thing you can do is begin explaining it more. And it just got more and more awkward. And I was like, and suddenly I was like, I'm so old, you know, and I might as well up here with like a flannel graph and a monkey. I'm here to sell you some snake oil. Like it was, it was ancient history to them. But anyway, um, the point I wanted to make was that once you see Jesus as Messiah, you go back through and you're like, of, of course, there, the tree in the garden where the first Adam fell, the tree on Mount Calvary where the second Adam had his victory. Of course, the son, Isaac, the only begotten son, the son of promise, was lifted, taken up the mountain and sacrificed, but a substitute was found to be sacrificed in his place. But one day there would come a sacrifice for whom he would be this. And I'm like, was the ram in the thicket named Jesus. Like how obvious could this be? Right. You go back and you see everything. 
That's what we're dealing with. In Isaiah chapter 42, he begins these songs of the servant. And you can't help it. You can't. When you read, I mean, 42, you'll see it. But, you know, uh, uh, Isaiah 53, when he says things like, you know, he, this person was oppressed and afflicted, but he opened not his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. He, he did no violence, but they, you know, they, they made his grave with the wicked. And, and you know, the Lord was, uh, uh, he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. You can't, as a Christian, you can't go back and look at that and go, that's got to be him. It's got to be the one. And so I'll just say at the outset, uh, I believe these servant songs have to be. They're about Jesus of Nazareth. That's who they're pointing to. And the fact that this was written, you know, 700 years before Jesus comes on the scene, it's remarkable. In fact, we learn some things about Jesus from these servant songs that we don't even learn from the Gospels. That, that, that some details are filled in. So with all that is set up, what does it mean that we say he is the king? What kind of king is he? And if you're a note taker, I'll give you three sort of subheadings. He's, he's a servant king. He's a healing king. And he's a suffering king. So one more time. The servant king, healing king, and the suffering king. First, the servant king. Verses 1 and 2. Behold my servant, whom I uphold. Previous chapters, he said, behold these worthless idols. And then he says, behold these worthless idolaters. In contrast to them, behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him, and he'll bring forth justice to the nations. All right? So here we have, who's bringing forth justice to the nations? Well, that's the job of a king. To, be, to do justice means to put things right. You know, Make the world what it ought to be. Yeah, now that's kingly. That's power. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. What? See, this is a, this is a, uh, what do you call it? Like a, almost like a contradictory person here. On the one hand, if he's going to do the king's justice, but he does it in a way, he doesn't even cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. I mean, <laughs> what, what does that mean? He doesn't seek to control public discourse. Politically, he's not trying to shout down his opponents, right? This is the opposite of what we've heard for the, as long as, you know, as long as I've been interested in politics for the last 10 years or more, this is the exact opposite, you know? I mean, have you ever been watching MSNBC or Fox News or any of them when all the talking heads are talking? Have you ever heard somebody say, hmm, that's a good point. And I would like to right now just sort of change my position because you've made a compelling point. And since we're really just focused on the issue and not just attacking personally, Man, that was really helpful. Thank you. Thank you. No, you, the, the reason you wouldn't do that is it doesn't make any... You, there wouldn't, that show wouldn't exist, right? Um, but he doesn't do this. He doesn't cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. What's my point? Here you've got somebody who's going to bring about the king's justice, but not use the world's methods. Now, how are you going to do that? How are you going to have the strength of the king to lay down justice without using the weapons of power and domination that the world says use. This is a mysterious uh, figure indeed, a servant king. How can a, how can a king be a, also a servant? And that's why you see it was, it was like, uh, like lightning in the, in the sky. I mean, um, uh, what a revelation it must have been. Here he, he, he has all this power to do these things and yet rejects power. You know, just as a simple example, when Jesus would go around and do a miracle, you ever notice uh, he wouldn't capitalize on the publicity of it? He would do the opposite. Anybody notice that? Like if you and I did one, just one of the miracles Jesus did, 
Can you imagine how insufferable we would to be, be to be around? You know what I mean? Like every day for the rest of your life, any meal you go to. Yeah, this, this restaurant has pretty good bread and pretty good fish, but <laughs> I bet, <laughs> bet they couldn't feed 5,000. Right? I mean, you would be insufferable, right? It's all you would talk about. Feedthe5,000.com. You'd have a book deal. You'd be on Oprah. You would say, look at this thing I can do. And you'd never hear the end of it. Jesus did the opposite. Every, he would do this miracle. He'd be like, hey, listen, I know you were, uh, I know you had leprosy and that's made you an outcast, but, uh. Badal. Now, you, I don't know Badal, but he, you know, he, right? You no longer have leprosy. And what did he do? What did he do? Yo, tell the nations, put me on blast. Spread the word on social media. No, what does he say? Shh. Keep this on the down low. You show one person. Show the priest, because he was the guy who could say you could come back into society, right? Show him, because you got to. Otherwise, don't tell a soul. Right? Keep this, right? He didn't cry aloud or... Or lift up his voice. He didn't use these miracles the way you and I would have used them. What's going on with this? Well, he's king. He's going to establish justice. But he's going to do it in a way of humility and rejecting the power of this world. And that's why it's such a revelation. When it's Jesus, you go... Like when at his baptism, when the, when the sky was ripped open at his baptism, you remember this? The Holy Spirit come, came down and two scriptures were mashed up together in what he said. If you recall, the skies ripped open and the voice from heaven says, this, you remember this? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased or in whom is my delight. Same thing. Those are two separate scriptures. One, this is my beloved son is from Psalm 2. That is messianic language. That is King David. That is Psalm 2 is like, while the nations rage, that's my son. And he's the one who's going to bring the justice, right? Eh? At the same time, in whom I'm well pleased is right there. It's from Isaiah 42. In whom my soul delights is in whom I'm well pleased. Same translation, right? Just different English words. They're, he's mashing them together. He's the king. He's this servant. Psalm 2 is the song of the king. Isaiah 42 is the song of the servant. And you got him in the same person in Jesus Christ. Can we just worship and meditate on the excellency of Jesus Christ for a moment? Jonathan Edwards 18th century uh, Purit, uh, American intellectual has this sermon called The Excellencies of Jesus Christ. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he sort of introduces it by saying, you ever meet a truly great person? Unbelievably talented, let's say, or unbelievably wealthy. Well, they have tremendous power. And then you see that person doing something insanely humble. They're, they make a meal for a sick neighbor and they go and carry it to them. Or, or, or they sit down and take time with someone who in the world's eyes would have no importance at all. Not important at all. But they like give all this time to them and they listen to them. They have all this power and they have the world at their fingertips. And yet they do that. He says, how does that make you feel when you see that? I'll tell you how it makes you feel. The, their greatness is all the more greater because they don't act great. Right? Like, if you've ever met a celebrity and you were starstruck, I don't know if you're into, if you're into football and you met your favorite quarterback, or if you're into knitting, I uh, can't think of a, if, you know, you know, if you're into this amazing, you know, this, I can't believe I get to meet him. And then, and then, and then they were so humble and down to earth. And you're like, this person has crazy wealth. You went from like, 
I like them to like creeper stalker levels of unhealthy liking them. Why? Because you're like, I can't believe it. They're, they're great, but their greatness is all the more greater because they're so humble about it. And it's in the tiniest, faintest way. That is a glimmer of what you have infinitely in Jesus Christ. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he's bending down to wash the disciples feet. He is servant. He is King. And that closes out that first heading, Servant King. But we can't close it out without me putting on my Pastor Joe Lecce hat for just a moment. And saying, and what about you? Right? What about you? It's the highest form of flattery. It's the highest form of what I appreciate about Pastor Joe is he's not afraid. He's not afraid. He's like, like a coach, not afraid to challenge me, right? And I, I, I want to be unafraid to challenge you. What about you? If you follow this servant king, is that reflected in your life? It's not as simple as you think. Some of you are already naturally awesome at servant. And I'm going to challenge you. You need to grow as a king. And some of you are naturally good at the kingly gifts. And I want to challenge you. You need to grow as a servant. This is who we follow. That gospel should be reflected in our life. So if you're, if you, let me ask you, if you're naturally, uh, some of us are naturally very bold and brash. And that's what I mean by kingly. Okay. We don't struggle with, you know, being a, a big, loud presence. Okay. So you're larger than life. Are you also growing as a servant? Are you growing in gentleness? Okay. Are you growing in tenderness? Are you a person who's tender hearted? Others of you are so meek and mild and tender. Let me challenge you. Are you growing in your boldness? What I want for us. Right? I mean, think about the way Jesus is described in the New Testament. Think about it. Everybody remembers he's the lion of Judah. And he is. But do you know a lot more than lion? It's, a lot, it's totally different animals that are used to be metaphors of Jesus. Lion, no doubt. He's the lion of Judah and he's on the move. But you know, so many times it's not lion. It's lamb. What about in Luke? He's mother hen. I want to guide Jerusalem under my wing like a mother hen. Right? Even at his baptism, it wasn't a war eagle. Oh, it's on! Right? No, what was it? A, a gentle a dove. Of all animals to pick, right? You and I would have picked eagle. We absolutely would have gone eagle. Eagle with like missiles coming out. I mean, it would have been awesome, right? Why? Because king, that's power. Instead, it's what? Dove. So is that being reflected in your life? Are you a, what, what my dream for God's people is that we would be roaring lambs. Equally known for gentleness and power. You know who did, you know who, who did that would be, uh, uh, in a small way would be, uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Right? We will, like, everybody remembers I have a dream, but a lot of people forget letters from a Birmingham jail. Right? Where, okay, I have a dream. Like, like everybody remembers, like, his nonviolence, his nonviolence. But letters from Birmingham jail is, we have waited long enough. He was talking to white pastors who was like, just don't know civil disobedience, just be cool, it'll take time. He's like, how much time? He was a roaring lamb. Right? And that's the model. I mean, that's, right? That there was a sense of uh, great power and great gentleness held together because he was following his servant king. And so, you too are growing in that in your life. Servant king. Oh, but also a healing king. Healing king. This is good. <laughs> this is the Bible. It's all good. Okay. 
A bruised reed. You know this verse? Anybody grew up in church, you may know this verse. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. The old King James. This version, the ESV says, A faintly burning wick he will not quench. And he will faithfully bring forth justice. A bruised reed he will not break. And faintly burning wick he will not quench. What in the world's a bruised reed and a faintly burning wick about? This is such a great metaphor. The, uh, the word, we must focus on the word bruise. And we'll come back to it again and again uh, before we're done. But the word bruise <clears throat> does not convey in English what it conveys over and over in Hebrew. And the reason is, well, it can be translated bruise, but it can also be translated crush. It, it, so <clears throat> when you and I think bruise, right, we think, oh, whew, it's just a bruise, right? We think of it as, oh, that's not so bad. It's a bruise. That's not at all what it means in Hebrew. It means... Uh, a crush. Uh, so a bruise would be a, a deep contusion by which you had been hit so hard that though the outside you may still be, I mean, you're not like severed in two, but on the outside you are so damaged that there has been a, a, an internal organ completely crushed. So it's a death blow. You may look good on the outside, but inside you're dying. That's a bruised reed. Uh, imagine a stalk of wheat. It's not been ripped off. It's bent over. And though it's not ripped off, though it's literally not severed, it's lights out for the wheat. It's over for the wheat. It's so bent over, it's done, right? It's a hopeless situation. A, uh, uh, the idea of a faintly burning wick is it's the last moments before the candle goes out. That's it. It's over. It's not, it's technically not completely out, but it's over. It's a death blow on the surface. You may be fine. What? You still got light in your candle? Come on. What? You're doing fine. You're still upright, but inside you are hopeless and dying. And what this means is the servant, Jesus Christ is attracted to hopeless cases. He loves them. He seeks them out. And he knows just what to do with them. He knows just how to heal a bruised reed. He knows, imagine the tenderness it would take. One false move and you rip that wheat, sever it. Uh, imagine a smoldering wick. One false move. Blow too hard and you snuff it out. You blow it out. Blow just with the amount of oxygen and you can restore it back to life. Imagine the tenderness it takes for the world to look at it. It's utterly hopeless. Here's my point. He knows what to do with you. He knows what you need. And if you're here today, you may feel like that bruised reed. You may feel like I'm okay on the outside. But there's a deep contusion. I'm telling you, it's a death blow. And who's going to help you with that? At best. Can we celebrate for a moment doctors that are good at what they do? What a ministry. I recently heard about uh, a guy blessing. He was at this mega church in South Africa. And he asked all the doctors to come forward. And there's hundreds of them in his church. Big mega, mega church. Tens of thousands. Hundreds of doctors. And he prayed over the doctors for their ministry of healing. And as he's praying over the doctors, the Lord gave him an idea. And he was like, can I really do this? Can I do this? And he said he does this thing that I don't know. A lot of preachers have this ability to do. Where they just kind of put their words on autopilot. But in their head, they're going, I wonder if I can do this. And they're like, words are still going because it's just formulaic. Hey, bless them, whatever. But inside, they're like, should I do it? Should I not do it? And he said, oh, why not? I'll do it. And then he said uh, to the doctors, I'm not trying to weird you out. And if anybody wants to sit down right now, you sit down. But they've just blessed the doctors and prayed. 
But if you're willing to stay, I'd now like all the sick to come forward. And doctors, would you turn and pray over these sick? I know. And he said, because, probably because of peer pressure. Like, who's going to be like, I'm sitting down. Right? You know what I mean? But he said, everybody stayed. There wasn't a dry eye in the place. Patient, and he said, some of the patients came to their very own physician. And the physician, <laughs> just, you know, weeping. And the patients weep. And all these doctors called him back up week after week and said, I see my patients differently now. Like this whole person, right? So can we celebrate the medical profession? I'm, I'm with you, right? Okay. And, and the ministers, listen, physicians are experts in the bodies. And at their best, they give you a therapy or a prescription. They give you a pill. Ministers who are great at what we do, at best, tell you, repent. I boil everything down. What I'm going to get at is your soul, man. I mentioned your spirit. Everybody see my point? We are reductionistic at best. Therapists and counselors, I'm celebrating all of them. We need all of them to be awesome at what they do. The list could go on and on. Teachers and employers. But I'm just st stopping here. Therapists, all right? So the doctor says, here's your pill. The preacher says, repent. And the therapist says, let's talk, right? And we can uncover this stuff. You need a, a friend and a kind of talk. We need them good to be all of them. But at best, we are reductionistic. But this servant, he knows just how much of each of these and what combination. I mean, we give somebody the wrong prescription, it could kill them. Do not Dr. Jesus. You, you see what I'm saying? And there's so many examples of this in Scripture. There are times when the like God sends a messenger to somebody, and the, and the message is, repent. right? And then sometimes God sends an angel to somebody, and what they need is, rejoice. Right? Uh, my favorite is in uh, 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19, there's a smoldering wick. His name's Elijah. He is a burned out minister. He's come to, he's absolutely depressed. He is so crushed by the oppression of the people that are against God in his life. Utter failure. He's absolutely at his wits end and he's suicidal. Do you remember this? He asked God to die. He said, I'm going to lay my head down. And if it's all the same to you, Lord, I'd like to not wake up. And God sends him an angel. And what does the angel say to him? Does he say, repent, Elijah, some man of God you are. Repent. No. Does he say, uh, uh, rejoice. It's going to be okay. No. Does he say, let's talk. Can I start asking you questions? No. What does he do? He cooks. No, don't get up. Hey? Starts cooking. No questions, no talking. Starts cooking. Some of you are good cooks. But you can't cook like an angel. <laughs> How good you think that was? Huh? What do you think he made? Don't say angel. I know it's right there. Like angel. I know it's the easy. <clears throat> it's sort of the low hanging fruit to say angel food cake. But I'm asking nobody to say that right now. I mean, making this delicious food feeds him why hey you're going to need strength for this journey what's he saying just the end of the chapter bub not the end of the book just the end of your chapter it's not the end of the book the reason you think it's the end of the book is because you live where everybody lives you live in the middle of your story so it's it's okay it's understandable you always think it's the you always think it's the end of your book but when you get done you're like actually there's been chapter after chapter i've been i've been in tighter spots than this yeah right so here you're going to need some food for your journey cook some again then he starts asking him the questions. Then he starts talking to him about the... And then he gives... Does everybody understand what I'm saying? You, <coughs> God, only God knew what my man needs is not a sermon. He needs an omelet. He needs angel breakfast. You know what I mean? 
uh, and gave it to him. Who but Jesus can do that for you? Like some of you have some sicknesses and you got some bruising. And I want, everybody hear me clearly. I, I bless the ministry of doctors and physical therapy. I bless the ministries of preachers. Duh. I want us to be more and more skilled. But the best ones can only, we, man, we're not, we cannot give you what King Jesus can give. We just can't. But he can. Boy, he's a healer. He's a healing king. I know a really, really, really good doctor. I think she's brilliant. And she um, uh, was into infectious diseases. And then as she got more and more in that, I mean, her, I could give you her resume. It's staggering. And eventually, uh, she realized, while I'm really good at treating patients, I want to eliminate Zika. You know, I don't want to just treat this person. I want to get at systemic causes that go after the whole thing. And that's exactly what she did. And she's now, like, she'll be on the news. She's the one briefing the World Health Organization when it meets in Zurich. They're, they're asking her, okay, what, what would it take to do this? And um, that move from, I'm a good private practice, you know, I can... I can help this person too, but what are the systems around? Eventually, when you get bruised enough or when your candle gets snuffed out enough, don't you eventually start to say, why did I get this way? What, what? It's not just like that's what the Bible is. It's pretty clear. Sin is in you and sin is out there. It's not either or you have sinned against people and you got to hear that. And others have sinned against you and you got to hear that too. It, it, it's the way it is. So what are the systemic? Who can deal with the underlying? And that's that faithfully bring forth justice. I want you to see that in one verse, you have this melt in your mouth sweetness, Dr. Jesus and you giving you angel omelets, just what you need on such a personal level. And then immediately zooms out to the broadest. He will faithfully bring justice, mishpat, you know, shalom, the idea of, 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 of a holistic a world where you don't need all this uh, uh, healing all the time because we're like treating each other better and the lion will lie down with the lamb and so forth and so on. So how do you get there? How, how does that happen? And uh, 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 this is very important. It's a a very important biblical theme. If you are familiar with the Bible, you will know it immediately and you'll appreciate it. If you're not, this is going to be such a blessing to you because it's going to be like the big picture where you're like, now I see where these little stories fit in. And here it is. If you go all the way back to the beginning where we lost this justice, where we lost this, this health, if you go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis, God puts them in the perfect, a perfectly just world. Uh, we think of justice as like, you did wrong, now you're getting justice. This is more like social justice in the sense that there's, there's, it's a just society, okay? In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve choose to be their own gods, when they rebel against God and they do the one, they break the one command that, that God told them not to do, right? What happened, they call it the fall of man, is that the relationship between humans and God was fractured, okay? Humans and God were separated. There was a, a break, a fracture. And this is the narrative arc of Scripture. Watch this, it's very important. Christian doctrine teaches that when a relationship with God is fractured, everything else falls apart. That it stems from and starts with a fracturing of a person's relationship with God. And watch what happens next. As soon as their relationship with God was broken, Adam's relationship, if I may get psychological, Adam's relationship with Adam was fractured. For the first time, he uses words like this. Uh, uh, Adam, where are you? He said, I was afraid. 
I was, he feels fear and guilt for the first time ever. What happened? Adam's relationship was, with Adam was fractured. He didn't know how to relate to himself anymore. He used to just, just be sort of at ease in his own, he was comfortable in his own skin. Because all he had was skin. The point is that it doesn't matter. Anyway, he was, he was at ease. <clears throat> and now he feels fear and guilt. Then what happens next? You remember? Adam's relationship with others, with Eve, was fractured. All because of this fracture with God. God calls them all together, Adam, Eve, and the serpent. And what does he ask Adam? Adam, is it true you did this? But now he says a fractured relationship with Eve. So no longer does he say, it is true, my Lord, I failed you. What does he say instead? First words out of his mouth. The woman that you gave, that you, you and the woman have a lot to talk about. Huh? <laughs> Right? And poor Eve's like, I'll deal with you later. Like, this is not, right? And even the servant, everything, even their relationship with their bodies. Now they grow old and wear out. And we weren't going we to die. Even their relationships with the earth. Now it bears thorns and thistles. Everything was broken. And that's why Christians believe, I and mean, we will teach, no matter whether it's counseling or medicine or any sort of preaching, un until that relationship with God is ultimately restored... There's little hope for any other relationship, even a relationship with yourself, right? To have any hope. And that's what Jesus, oh, that's what Jesus could do. Not just individually deal with, the, uh, with, with one single case, but to undo the, the fracturing of the whole world. I'm just going to skip ahead because I'm going to finish with verse 4. But if you look at verse 7, look at what the servant's going to do. He's going to open the eyes that are blind. Bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and the prison, those who sit in darkness. Now, was that literal or metaphorical? Verse 7. In other words, is the servant coming to literally heal and open the eyes of the blind? Or is he coming to, like, bring revelation? Is he literally coming to drag people out of jail? Or is he coming to sort of set the captives free and let them see the truth? And the answer is, of course, yes. Bartimaeus was blind. Really, literally blind. And Jesus made him not blind. And he also opened the eyes of people lost and hopeless to the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, he pulled people trapped in sin out of prison. He pulled people in addictions and hopelessness and demonic oppression. He pulled them out. And in this way, he set the captive free. And he did it literally too. I can think of at least one. The crowds uh, were asked, do you want Barabbas? He's in prison. He's in the dungeon. You want Barabbas or you want Jesus? They said, give us Barabbas. And there's this moment where Barabbas is pulled out of a dungeon and Jesus takes his place. He literally set a captive free who didn't deserve it. He's been doing it ever since. It's kind of his deal. <clears throat> Let's finish. He is the healing king. Uh, my point is simple. It's, it's yes, it's relief, it's tender, it's individual, and it's also systemic. And while I finish, while I get back to verse 4 to finish, let me say one final word about city on a hill in particular. What's exciting about this church, you're do, it takes both, in other words. You're doing relief work and release work. Relief work is you are freezing cold. We don't have time to get better policies in place and a sort of Long Island-wide shalom going. You just need a coat. Okay, you're hungry and we don't have time to talk about all the systemic properties that go into a distribution of wealth. You just need a turkey dinner. So you're doing relief work. 
But then you're gathering to pray down powers and strongholds, and that is release work. See, that's, hey, we're going to help you in the short term, but there's some long-term stuff that only God's going to break through. And this community involvement and the kind of idea that it takes everybody and we're out there in the community, that is release work. That's that long-term. And it takes both. Why? Because you're following your servant king. Why wouldn't we be involved in both? Not one or the other. All right, here we go. Last one. Let's, let's close out. He is the servant king. He's a healing king. And he's a suffering king. Here's how he's able to do this. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he's established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. The, the funny thing is the people who translate your Bible from Hebrew to English are infinitely smarter than me. They know so much Hebrew, more Hebrew than me. It's just curious to me. The word coastlands mean islands, right? Long Island. Uh, and uh, what it means is the far reaches of the world. Right? So they're saying even out there in the islands that are undiscovered, everybody's crying out for the justice God's going to bring. But the thing that really strikes me is three is meant to play on four. Four is meant to play on four. Verse four is meant to play on three. A bruised reed he will not break and a faint wick he won't quench till he, right? He's going to be the one faint and then discouraged of all words. The word, guess what the word for discouraged is? It can also be translated bruised. So I have the ESV literally in my Bible. It says he will not or be discouraged. Footnote three. Oh, let's see what three is. Three <clears throat> or bruised. Well, why not just say bruised, man? That would make my job as a preacher who's trying to tie the whole sermon together at the end. Everybody would go, ah, but now I literally had to point out a footnote. Like, You're killing me. Anyway, the point is what? He knows how to heal this bruised reed. Hmm? And he knows how to bring back this faintly burning wick. But here's what's going to happen. It's a prediction. He's going to be bruised. He's going to go grow faint and be snuffed out. But it won't stop him. He's still going to bring out justice. What does that mean? It means the reason your bruises can be healed is not because he made them go away. It's because he took them into himself. He's going to be bruised. You feel like your candle is on the verge of being snuffed out? Look to the one whose candle was snuffed out on Calvary's cross. It all goes back to Genesis 3. I told you what he said to the man. I told you what he said to the woman. I left out what he said to the serpent. Interesting little prophecy. Some people, God actually preaches the gospel. Some people point that out. It's like a proto-Uangelion. It's like the early first God. He tells to the snake. He says, hey, prophecy for you, snake. Out of the seed of the woman... I'm going to produce this being, this person, okay? And this guy, here's the deal. He's going to bruise your head. He's going to, and again, bruise means crush, right? So your, 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 your translation may say, he's going to crush your head and you're going to crush his heel. You're going, to, you're going to bruise his heel, right? He's going to crush your head and you're going to bruise his heel. So there you go, snake. Deal with that, right? Now, for years, you may wonder, like, what in the world bruise your heel? Like, what's the, I don't know, it seems random, right? Like a poisonous snake bruising a heel. Seems random. So here's the analogy. Here's the thing. Let's all go back to the ancient Near East. And we're standing in a group of our most beloved, our, our loved ones. Say it's even a wedding party where literally we've invited the whole village. Everybody we know. Uh, friends and loved ones and everybody we treasure. Our own spouse. Our fiance just now made spouse. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And a poisonous desert viper makes his way into our wedding party. And you see it, but your loved ones don't see it yet. And you know you've got to act. And here's the deal. You have to do what? You've got to crush it. 
You've got to crush that serpent. But you know, if you, if you go around stomping on a serpent, invariably, that serpent can still bite your heel. And when that happens, you crush that serpent. He strikes your heel. What is that happens? The poison. You killed the serpent. You saved everyone you cared about. But that poison went into you. The poison had to go into you for everybody else to be saved. And that prophecy was fulfilled by King Jesus on the cross. He was a suffering king. All the poison and the wickedness and the evil and the wrath that we deserve. He absorbed it in himself so that we could stand here today praising him and saying, I was a bruised reed and he knew what I needed. He's the only one who could heal me. I was a smoldering wick, but oh, he could do it. So will you put yourself in the care of Dr. Jesus today? Because you can have a doctor and never go see him or never, you know, never let him in your world. Isn't that weird when you go to a doctor for a full physical? It gets real. It gets vulnerable, right? Right? A lot of people don't want to get that real with Dr. Jesus. Right? Now, just treat me from afar. Maybe just give me a consult every now and then. No, will you put yourself in the care of Dr. Jesus? He knows how to heal you. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Let's go to him in prayer and then... Rejoice in the Lord's Supper. What a great Savior we have. Father, we're before you in worship. You are a servant king. You're a healing king. And oh, you're a suffering king. You're a suffering king. You took that poison into yourself. You took that bruising and made it your own so that you could heal those of us who have bruised. We've bruised one another. We've bruised ourselves. We've been deeply bruised by others. And yet you are attracted to us hopeless cases. And we give you thanks. Thank you, Lord, for being a suffering king. Draw our hearts to you in such a way that when we leave this place, we too would be willing to enter into that substitutionary suffering, that we would take a little bit less so that others could have a little bit more, so that we would be a little bit bolder if we need to be bolder, or a little more gentle and humble if we need to grow in gentleness and humility. That we would... Be continue to be brothers and sisters who both do release work and relief work, not one or the other, but both that you would empower this church and uh, give them more and more uh, uh, ability and resources to do more of that. God, that we would apply this as we follow the servant in Jesus name. Amen. We're going to close fittingly with the supper that the servant instituted at the end of his life. When the suffering servant knew he was going to be bruised by the wrath of God, that he would be like a candle snuffed out, he also knew it wouldn't stop him until justice was brought forth. And we still look forward to that day. The church is breaking through. We're bringing that righteousness of the true king in larger and larger measure while we're here on this earth. That's what we mean when we say your will be done, your kingdom come. But one day we know and trust that the full measure of his righteousness will uh, be in the new heaven, new earth. All will be made well. And that finally, uh, that uh, Genesis 1 and 2 will be restored uh, in the end. Until such time, we need hope. We need courage, right? We need to remember who we're following. And to that end, Jesus gave us this meal of remembrance. It's a symbol, right? That's why it's not a full meal. You know, it's not like a whole station or a big buffet, a restaurant. It's a symbol. And that even the, even the idea that we're just taking a little bit 
reminds us. It's a symbol of a meal. And the meal happened the, uh, the last night of Jesus' earthly ministry. He took some bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in like manner, he took the cup, saying this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood given for you. He says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we're doing. This is a church that will continue to proclaim the good news of the gospel. That by his stripes, you are healed. Like, this is the forgiveness. This is the good news that the world desperately needs. He didn't just make your bruises go away. He took them because he loves you. And you are loved. You got to admit that we've bruised each other. uh, We're sinners. And at the same time, we got to admit we are loved to the stars. It's, It's more. It's both. You think you're bad? You're actually worse. You think you're loved? You don't have any idea. Just both. So if you cling to that as your promise and your hope of salvation, come and get the reminder that he told you you needed to be have remembrance of what he did and who he is. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.